Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi again, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. There's plenty going on in the spy world this week, including the opening of yet another James Bond film. The last one starring a moody Daniel Craig. I talked with James Grady, author of the book that gave us the iconic thriller, Three Days of the Condor, about the influence of Bond books and movies on him and other spy writers of his generation. Well, the funny thing was, I grew up loving the James Bond novels and and the Sean Connery films. I mean, how could you not love the scene where Ursula Andress walks out of the ocean in her white bikini and our hero gets a chance to meet her and everything works out emotionally for the two of them. My approach when it came to writing Condor was I knew I'd never met James Bond, and I wanted to write a character who was definitely not James Bond. And I deliberately made sure that my Condor could not do anything more than I could do as a human being, and usually a little bit less. That's spy novelist James Grady. We'll be back with a full interview later in the show. Gene? But first, Anonymous, the shadowy and controversial hacking group, has now hacked into an internet services company called Epic. The data they have now released provides the names and other personal information of those who promote hate on the internet. Extremism researchers are now hard at work mining this data, including Dr. Heidi Byrich. She spent 20 years at the Southern Poverty Law Center before co-founding the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. I asked her whether this hack was a bonanza for people like herself. It is absolutely a bonanza. It's the most amazing amount of data about both the far right and the extreme right that have ever been put in the public domain. You know, in my entire career tracking right-wing extremists, there have been leaks at times, but they didn't have the magnitude of this. It might be, for example, the list of the Oath Keepers membership or a piece of another hate group's mailing list. But this is, this is of a completely different order. It has invoices. It tracks who were domain registrars, emails. You know, It's a whole bunch of information all integrated, and that makes it very, very different than in, in the past. So what's the most important part of this for you as a researcher? Well, for me, what's the most interesting is we're going to see the actual ecosystem of Epic. And Epic, of course, has been the place that has hosted the most extreme websites, players who've been kicked off you know, mainstream social media. And it shows it in a more integrated way than looking at organizations sort of one by one, if you had information. This is going to give us information on so many of the players at once, and we've never seen that before. And and so we're getting a look behind the veil of what this world is really like. So you're going to see potentially relationships between individuals. Is that right? 
yeah, we have the potential here to find out, for example, if a member of one particular group, let's say the Proud Boys, which is prominent in this hack, plays a role in another organization, helps with a website for somebody else. Epic has a mix of extremist groups that were hosted there or extremist forums like Gab, for example, but it also has some prominent conservative sites that were there. So are there linkages between those websites? The Texas GOP's website was on there. Are there links between those people and people in extremist groups? These are potentially the kinds of things that we can find out. And I presume also you're going to find out about who is providing the money, correct? (laughs) The money is for anybody who does the kind of work that I do, the big deal, right? Who is behind these groups? Are they self-funded little local simple organizations that maybe raise some money here and there selling books and t-shirts? Or are there money people, real dollars behind these organizations and what they're up to? Now, I have to say some of the hosting invoices are for very small amounts. So I haven't been able to see anything that indicates somebody who's plowing major amounts of money in there, but we've got emails, we've got different, you know, there's just so much information. We'll see what happens. You know, the other thing about this is we won't necessarily know if someone's using their real name or not, you know, so that's something that has to be very much sussed out here. But we might find, for example, an LLC or an individual that we can verify who might be behind multiple sites providing funding. I mean, it's just unclear. And this is the aspect, the financing of extremist groups that is always the most fascinating. Some of my early work at the Southern Poverty Law Center was about cutting off financing to hate groups, cutting off PayPal accounts, for example, to to Klan groups and other extremists. So are there other sources of money? I don't know, but I sure would like to know. I know you haven't been able to exploit things fully, but have you learned things already from just your first look at the data? Well, you know, I'm, I and my colleagues are trying to take this really slow. One of the big concerns I have about this is making a mistake. In other words, making an assumption about somebody's name or somebody's relationship that perhaps turns out not to be true. So at this point, you know, aside from some of the things that have already been put in the public domain and things that actually we knew about Epic before, who they host, what main extremist groups are on that site, it hasn't been explosive disclosures yet, but we're taking our time looking at the data. I've told some other folks, you know, we had, for example, an Oath Keepers membership list when I was at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And we were very, very careful with that data because you know, it went back to the founding of the group. And there were people who were listed as joining, say, right as Obama came into the office. And then there was no end date on the data. So we didn't know if that person was a member of the Oath Keepers for 15 seconds or for years. And you certainly didn't want to disclose or, you know, essentially dox or out somebody who maybe got a fire in their belly for 15 minutes and then realized they didn't want to be anything, you know, have anything to do with this organization. So that puts me in the cautious boat about disclosing information. So how long do you think it's going to take to go through all of this? There is a lot. It's going to take a really, really long time. It's, you know, one of the ways to sort of sort out what matters and what doesn't matter in this data set is to compare it to other data sets from extremist groups and see if you get crossover. There are people like me and others who maybe know a lot of prominent members of extremist groups, but going through 110,000 names is completely insane. You can do quick searches to look for them, say, look for the head of the Proud Boys, a person everybody knows, Enrique Tario. But when it comes to those things that haven't been so public 
it's just going to be slog work. That's what this is going to be, slog work to figure out what matters and what doesn't, what's interesting and what isn't, what's verifiable and what's not. And so, you know, I think it's months and in some cases it might take longer. It could end up being something like the Panama Papers, right, which took news organizations years to sort through and digest and explain and put some you know, legitimate analysis on it. Should we presume that law enforcement is looking at this, too? That's an interesting question. One of the things that's in the hack are subpoenas from law enforcement for data from Epic, largely related to people involved in and groups involved in January 6th. I'm not sure if law enforcement has the right to look at a hack. I don't know. You know, when it comes to federal law enforcement, usually they can look at data in the public domain if they have an open case, which they certainly would for those involved in January 6th. But I have no idea, ultimately, if law enforcement can just go ahead, grab this data from a hack and start looking at it. You've mentioned a couple of times verification. And the few people that have already been outed as a result of this hack have claimed my information was falsified. I didn't have anything to do with this. Would it be easy to falsify your information with a company like Epic? I think that's possible. I think another thing that's possible is that names that are similar to other people's names could be misconstrued. I'm not saying they have in the cases of the people who've already been outed. Like, for example, there was a Florida real estate agent, I think, who lost his job over this. It's also possible that people could sort of end up in the data in an attendant way, like they're not active promoters of this stuff or actively involved and they end up in the data set. This is why I'm, you know, I'm just concerned about being careful because if you're shown to be connected to extremist groups, you lose your job, your income, perhaps your future. And nowadays, this stuff lives on forever on the internet, right? So it's not just a blip. Anybody can search for you. It's also possible that people are using false names that turn out to be somebody else's name, right? Now, the fact that there are addresses and emails and a lot of details will make it a little easier to make sure that the person is the person that you think it is, but you still have to be really, really careful. Do the people in these extremist groups often count on anonymity? And what difference will daylight potentially make? They absolutely count on anonymity. I mean, that's the byword. You look at these, you know, there are very few people in neo-Nazi groups, white supremacist groups, militias who put their real names out there and are completely public about their activities. You know, it's usually the leadership, right? Someone like Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers. But there are thousands and thousands of people involved in those groups. And I know that intimately about the Oath Keepers because we had the membership list who had no public footprint. They may well have been using a fake name or an avatar or whatever the case might be to post on various sites, but they had no expectation that anybody would ever figure out that they were on the Donald.win, for example, someplace like that. And now that is potentially going to come out. And I do think that sunshine effect may have a suppressive effect on people getting involved in extremist groups where they thought no one will ever know what I'm up to. They'll never know what I'm saying or what I'm signing on to. There's probably going to be a lot of people out there who are going to think twice about it, given this particular hack. So when you do verify information, what should happen? Should these people be doxxed? It is, in my opinion, if you're involved in an extremist group, 
that especially if you're involved in one connected to violence, this, these are the groups that I'm most interested in. It's not just the ideological groups. It's groups that we know are in the real world connected to hate crimes, to terrorism, something like January 6th, but there's a lot of other violence that comes out of this movement. I think that you bear the burden if you're in there and you're connected to those groups with the weight of that connection. And my rule for a long time has been that if you really are involved in a group and we know it, and you're fostering ideas and beliefs that are dangerous either to our democracy or to uh, marginalized communities, and we can prove that that's the case, then it belongs in sunshine because these are really dangerous movements. Domestic terrorism, right? White supremacy is the number one domestic terrorism threat in this country and abroad. And we should remember that this isn't just data about Americans. This is about lots and lots of people living in other countries who are involved in these movements. If you're connected to that kind of thing, I believe it's important to put the sunshine out there and put those people's names out there. But you've got to be darn sure that that is correct. Do you anticipate that you're going to find the names of people in law enforcement, in the military? I am positive we're going to find that. You know, there was a hack also of the Oath Keepers stuff, not just Epic, but other information came out about the Oath Keepers. And they found, I believe yesterday, a couple of NYPD officers on that list. When we were looking at the Oath Keepers membership list we had when I was at the Southern Poverty Law Center, there were a lot of cops on there. There were military officials. There were people who worked at bomb labs, for example, for the federal government. And because we weren't able to verify each of these individuals, we didn't put that material in the public domain. But there's going to be a lot of that in either the Oath Keepers hack or in this hack. Bomb labs. Could you be more specific about that? Yeah, there was a person on the Oath Keepers list who worked at Red Arsenal up in northern Alabama, where they deal with bomb materials, bomb making, whatnot on that Oath Keepers list. We weren't able to verify the membership, so we never made it public. But there were some people potentially who seemed a little scary. So there was a second hack. The first had the names and the addresses and the credit card information. The other seems to be more about the system. Is that also key for you as a researcher? Yeah, I think potentially the second hack might be more important than the first hack because it's putting in the public domain the way all of Epic's business worked, how all these pieces were interlinked. And it's essentially a mirror of their entire server. And it might make it quicker to make connections between people, entities, for example, to see if the same person was perhaps paying for multiple websites. It might make it faster to suss these things out. I haven't looked at that data, so I don't know exactly how it's going to function, but it's a big deal. Imagine having a business, having all of its data in the coordinated way that a business looks at data, you know, between suppliers, customers, invoices inventory, et cetera. Imagine having that all organized for you and handed to you in in the same database system that the company essentially uses as opposed to pieces of that data. Why was Epic so popular with the far right? Epic was essentially um, a hoster of last refuge. So, you know, after 8chan, for example, which is this anonymous message board was hosting the video from the Christchurch mosque attacks, They were kicked off. They lost security services, a whole bunch of stuff. They found a refuge for a while on Epic. It didn't last forever, but they were for a while. 
when a lot of groups were thrown off of mainstream social media, Epic embraced them. There's one notorious website Epic hosted for a while called the Daily Stormer. It's a neo-Nazi outfit. And Cloudflare, after the Charlottesville riots in 2017, stopped providing them protection from attacks, like online attacks, DDoS attacks. And they found a home for a while with Epic. I mean, Epic just, you know, Epic and its owner, Rob Monster, don't care what the nature is of the content that they they host. What can you tell me about Monster? Such a name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's almost unbelievable, right? That that's his name. And he runs this uh, crazy website filled with hate content. He is a bizarre character. You know, he's flirted with extremist groups. He went, for example, on a podcast run by this uh, neo-Nazi named Eric Stryker at one point. Then he tried to act like he didn't know what he was getting involved in. He also, at other points in time, has made some anti-Semitic comments and then walked them back. He once called David Duke a great intellectual, for example. But then he, you know, said something else to say, like, oh, well, don't don't listen to him. Anyhow, these issues kind of repeating some of the ideas that are prevalent on the groups that are hosted on the site caused all of his Jewish board members to quit, I think in 2020. So there's been some fallout. So he's got a bit of a foot in the world of extremism that he hosts, even though he claims that this is just about free speech, right? That Epic exists entirely just because he doesn't want to, you know, he wants to have like a first amendment sensibility, but he flirts with uh, extremist ideas frequently. Is Epic going to continue to operate despite these hacks? I mean, <laughs> that's an interesting question. I would imagine if you were a client of Epic's, you want to get as far away from this site as you can. It appears that Rob Monster was told that there were vulnerabilities in his security system. I forget who's on record, but somebody said they told him about this. He didn't address it. This was like horrific cybersecurity on this site. So if you want to be anonymous and you want to be protected, unless Epic wildly changes the way it handles things, it doesn't seem like they're very very trustworthy at this point. Will these far-right operators be able to find other places on the internet to find a home? Will they find a last, last refuge, as it were? Well, I have to say, every time that I have thought in the past that deplatforming was going to end a group's run, they have seemed to found somewhere else to run to. They might have lost their audience. They might have, it might have crippled their activities for a while. But, you know, there's always a telegram where you can post at will anything that you want. It's not exactly the same as having your website hosted, right? That's a different entity, different kind of thing. I'm sure somebody's going to step into the breach and provide these services again. I, I just, it never, they never seem to really disappear from the internet. Look at 8chan and all the struggles they've gone through to stay up. And then, you know, they keep pop, pop, popping back up in some way. The big social media companies have come under a lot of scrutiny. Do you think that internet service companies like Epic have gotten a close enough look to now? I don't think so. It, it, this is actually an interesting question. You know, Facebook has taken, I would say, the most flack for hosting various forms of extremist content and not taking it down. Twitter has taken some of those hits as well. But social media has been the focus of civil rights activists and people who are working to counter white supremacy. What we don't look at that much anymore is the websites, the domain registrars, that that whole thing sort of gets a pass in terms of pushing out hate material. And perhaps it shouldn't. My colleagues at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights a few years ago wrote to, I forget which domain registrar, 
to say, please stop hosting the website Stormfront, which is the oldest hate site on the web. It went up in like 95. And the site did come down for a while. And I think we forget that places like Stormfront, which are basically like hate chat boards, can do as much damage in terms of pushing bad ideas out in the world, recruiting people. Now, they don't have the audience that Facebook does, right? I mean, that your potential recruitment there and the potential audience you can reach is so much bigger, but they can still keep hateful ideas out. And, you know, some of our the domestic terrorist attacks that have taken place in the U.S. are actually connected to those kinds of chat boards. I'm thinking specifically about Fraser Glenn Miller, the neo-Nazi who shot up some Jewish community facilities in Kansas, I think in 2014, I might be off by a year. He was an administrator on another hate board called Vanguard News Network, which is still up. So this ecosystem doesn't get much of a look at it, but it plays a role in terms of um, spreading extremist ideas and, you know, having people on those sites that could go on to commit acts of terrorism. The Internet has clearly enabled and empowered the far right. Does this hack significantly weaken that power? Well, I mean, I hope so. I hope it makes some people scurry away and think that I'm not going to be able to hide behind an anonymous shield. But that said, a lot of domestic terrorism is committed, most of it, by lone actors, one person. And those people can get radicalized anywhere. You know, Dylan Roof, who committed the horrible uh, shooting of the AME Church in Charleston in 2015, he was radicalized through Google searches. People don't talk about Google searches as a place where you can go down rabbit holes of hate, but you can. It has its problems as well. The shooter in Pittsburgh, right, at the Tree of Life Synagogue, he was on Gab. Others were in other places where they just imbibed this hateful ideology, including obscure places, and then went on to commit acts of violence. Maybe some people are going to be more wary of the movement or at least identifying publicly with the movement. Maybe some of the hate material doesn't come back up, remains to be seen. But people can get radicalized in a whole lot of ways, unfortunately. And it's not that hard to find hate material online. Do you think we're going to learn anything from these hacks about January 6th? Maybe, maybe. I'm not sure yet, but, you know, obviously some of the groups that were involved, including the two main groups that have been charged basically with conspiracy around January 6th, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, had material on that site. So there might be something something there. Anything that you would like to say to Anonymous? (laughs) Well, I guess I need to say thank you. I mean, I would never be able to see this kind of material. You know, all these years I've been working against right-wing extremism, and I wouldn't be able to see the ecosystem in the way um, that I can see it now. So they have done more to put data in the public domain about white supremacists and other forms of extremism than many of us who have been toiling away for a very long time. That was Dr. Heidi Byrick, co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Absolutely fascinating, Gene. Material from the epic hack has been called the Rosetta Stone of the far right, a tool to decipher the complete ecosystem, as Heidi put it, to the far right. I'm fascinated, though, by the question of whether law enforcement can use the stolen material to prosecute people conspiring to bring down the government by violent means. Surely FBI agents can't unsee it. 
Well, there are all kinds of limitations on what they can do on social media, what they can look at, what they can exploit. So it's a question we ought to explore in a future episode. Let's plan to do that. Coming up, more spy talk. Jeff has a great interview with James Grady about James Bond. In 1974, James Grady's first novel was turned into the iconic Watergate-era spy thriller Three Days of the Condor, starring Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway. He's published a slew of crime noir fiction since then and has been compared to George Orwell for his portrayal of a dystopian America. This week sees the opening of the last James Bond film starring Daniel Craig, who brought a dour edginess to the character. A far cry from the relatively sunny Sean Connery portrayal. The advanced reviews and box office have been fabulous, but I wondered, is it the end of an era? Is it time to retire James Bond forever? Grady, James Grady, welcome to Spy Talk. No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's last portrayal of James Bond has opened to very favorable reviews and good box office in London. It's got the usual car and foot chases, shootouts, and, of course, sadistic villains. But Daniel Craig's moody, even dark portrayal of James Bond is a far cry from the Sean Connery and even David Niven portrayals of Bond that we started with so many, many decades ago, right? Right. It's Daniel Craig in a way, and I think we should also credit Sam Mendes, the director of um, several of the last James Bond films, they mined film noir for a more moody, edgy character and one whose personal life and history complicates his missions and gives us a sense of a conflicted man, which we'd never really had before. I, you know, Sean Connery is James Bond. We always knew exactly what his life was going to be like with, you know, the, the current intonations, not so much. Do you think that the role changed over time because of the times, uh, the last 20 years of counterterrorism operations, revelations of CIA torture and so on? Absolutely. I, I think it became strangely much more realistic to think about off-the-books, non-state entities as villains. Everything from al-Qaeda to the cartels to billionaires laundering money in strange and unusual ways, including from South Dakota, as today's revelations about the Pandora Papers are bringing out to the world. And I think Somehow they were able, and I'm not quite sure how much of this was a conscious and how much of it was coincidental, they were able with Daniel Craig to reflect that more than we had been before. It used to be Spectre was something that we knew was a complete fake and a complete fabric of uh, our imagination. And now, not so much. To people who haven't followed it, the Pandora Papers, dug up by an international consortium of investigative journalists, uh, has exposed vast fortunes accrued by 
the world's autocrats and monarchs. I suppose that's the same thing, but it included a very revealing portrait of Vladimir Putin. You know, the Russians have always kind of been a stand-in villain for James Bond. And here we have uh, a revelation of Putin amassing vast fortunes. And of course, we know it's sadistic rule of his own country. So maybe, maybe Bond will name Putin in one of the future franchises. It could be. It was funny, even in From Russia with Love, the Soviet state, the KGB, was not the central villain. They were in, in some ways a, a victim of, of the sadistic specter plot that included trying to assassinate James Bond. And I think that before the Berlin Wall fell, when we had a kind of chess piece frozen in place, international environment, I, I think the franchise worked within that. But now, since the Berlin Wall fell and we've seen the rise of non-state actors in the real world, that makes the non-state actors in the James Bond world more credible and in a way kind of scarier. Yeah, they emerged very strongly in, in the remake of Casino Royale in 2006. It's an amorphous band of international terrorist financiers that Bond tussles with. Uh, and of course, in the famous card game in Monte, Monte Carlo. In that film, by the way, there's a toss-off line, I don't know if you remember it, by Judy Dench, who of course is the head of MI6 or M. She has a toss-off line about the prime minister has the good sense not to ask what we're doing. That, <laughs> in retrospect, that seems very, very timely, uh, considering uh, the counterterrorism practices that the FBI and the CIA were carrying out. Sure, absolutely. I mean, it, I think that I hate to lay any blame on on any more blame on George Bush, the, the junior, than has already been dropped on his shore. But I don't think he really wanted to know the details of enhanced interrogation techniques that were going on in Guantanamo. And I think his aides did his, their best to protect him from that. Throughout, certainly our lifetimes, our presidents often have been protected from the unnecessary details, whether it was J. Edgar Hoover deliberately hiding for his own ends his massive illegal campaigns against various individuals and groups or the CIA uh, in some of their early efforts. We've always tried to keep our democracy safe from knowing too much about the dirty details that allow us to stay alive in the world. Well, of course, Bond is always killing somebody. And one has thought that this might be kind of a fevered imagination of the audiences in a, in a way that they embraced Rambo back in the 1980s, yes. that they loved to see our, our agents going around smacking people or whacking them. And uh, Bond even says in Casino Royale, again, that uh, he, if he didn't love it, he couldn't kill anybody. So, um, right. But I once heard a former CIA officer say to someone else at a book party that uh, a diplomat had been harassed uh, by 
terrorists in uh, in a Middle Eastern country. And this uh, ex CIA guy said, so I went and killed him and he laughed. So <laughs> and it made me think of Bond, you know, uh, right. but generally speaking, our agents haven't gone around whacking people. As you know, far better than most and certainly far more than I. The role of intelligence agencies is to gather intelligence primarily. The secondary role that has been given to them since time immemorial is to influence events, to you know, help stage coups and things like this. But to get down to the personal level of assassination, I think, is really difficult, although uh, the Albanians were great at doing it for the Russians in the Cold War. And now the uh, SVR and FSB in Russia have shown us that they're willing to come over to London and use contact poisons on dissidents. The problem with using assassins in intelligence operations is you create killers. And the thing about a killer, you never know who his next target is going to be. Your first book, The Six Days of the Condor, which was turned into the iconic Watergate era, movie, Three Days of the Condor, of course, was inspired by some sinister events at that time. And you didn't have to apply a lot of imagination to tell your story of a CIA researcher played by Robert Redford, who gets caught up in some vast sinister uh, conspiracy. Bond grew out of the imagination of Ian Fleming, who was a former uh, British Secret Service agent, but it seemed to fly into a world of real fantasy, uh, as opposed to the books that you've written over the years. Has James Bond maybe worn out its welcome at this point? I mean, you can't say it has because it still gets great box office. But as an idea, as a metaphor for our intelligence operatives, do you think it still has appeal, intellectual appeal, if you will? That's the big question. We're all about to get to see what they're talking about as the last bond in the tradition with Daniel Craig going back to, as you noted, David Niven, as well as Sean Connery and, uh, you know, Roger Moore and all the others. Times have changed a great deal. The previous Daniel Craig movie relied a lot on computers. And the big threat was information destroying democracies by using, you know, hacking and basically uh, surveilling everybody on the planet for nefarious ends. I don't know, given the realities of our new technological world, our new post-COVID world and global warming, exactly how, as a creator working with an iconic artistic and legendary figure, you're going to move forward into the future. I think while I'm really anxious to see this coming James Bond, the the one that that will be released in our area, I think on Friday, I'm more curious to see how they're going to do the next one. Because, you know, there is going to be a next one, even if it bombs. Were you inspired by uh, James Bond books when you were writing, or was your imagination and creativity drawn by real-world events during the Watergate and Vietnam eras? 
Well, the funny thing was, I grew up loving the James Bond novels and, and the Sean Connery films. I mean, how can you not love the scene where Ursula Andress walks out of the ocean in her white bikini and our hero gets a chance to meet her and everything works out emotionally for the two of them? My approach when it came to writing Condor was I knew. I'd never met James Bond, and I wanted to write a character who was definitely not James Bond. And I deliberately made sure that my Condor could not do anything more than I could do as a human being, and usually a little bit less. And let me tell you, I've, I've never been ever to wow Ursula Andress on a beach anywhere. So it was, you know, nor, sh nor shoot the bad, the eye out of a bad guy from a moving car at, say, 60 miles an hour while he's running up a set of stairs and then effortlessly glide into a five-star restaurant in my tuxedo. I think the, the Vietnam War, which was the most prevalent experience of our youth, was what I wanted to draw. I wanted to kind of bring a realistic approach in a clearly fantasy thing. I, I made up things that uh, turned out to be true. Uh, <laughs> Condor sort of freaked out the KGB. And, and um, I think it was a friend of ours, Mr. Early, who wrote, discovered that they had watched and read Condor in the KGB and created a secret 2,000-man division to do what they thought Condor was doing in the book and the movies. I was trying to get away from pure fantasy and to try and bring intelligence back into the street level of the boomer generation in America. We can't. Tomatare had everything else under, under wraps. Right. And there's a whole new generation of terrific oh. espionage and spy uh, writers these days. But Bond. The Bond franchise is never going to be too realistic. It's never going to bring audiences back to some jarring truths about, say, Afghanistan. It's going to stay right. in the fantasy realm. Right. Well, we, they can't. We, we have been conditioned to see certain elements when we go to a James Bond movie. Beautiful women, fast cars, great chases, great gizmos, and, you know, an ending in which good will always triumph even if it's a little shaded with a noir whiff. Now, Rolling Stone called Daniel Craig's portrayal of Bond, which ends with this film, one long, loving victory lap. Do you see a very different Bond popping up in the next Bond film? I do. I'm at a loss to say exactly what it will look like or who it will be. I mean, we have everything from a change in fashion globally that basically the COVID pandemic helped create where people don't wear suits and ties anymore unless they have to. Whereas in all the James Bond films, everybody's always dressed in business attire. That alone is going to create a, a different sense of Bond as in well, where is he going to keep his Walther PPK? I think that we're going to have to rely on the hope that there's some young blood out there that knows how to work with an old legend. 
in order to keep the Bond franchise going. Otherwise, I think there'll be one, maybe two more movies that will just there'll be there'll be something that will open for a weekend and close on a Monday. We're not likely to see James Bond in casual Friday attire. (laughs) Well, that would be interesting, but it would feel wrong for all of them, the movie audience. We don't want to see him in that. We like the tuxedos at the Baccarat table. James Grady, always a pleasure to talk to you. You can find James Grady's work over at the Spy Talk newsletter, by the way, and and website at Substack. Hope you'll join us there. Until the next time, tutelure, James Grady. See you next in the spy world. Well, I guess James Bond like diamonds is forever. James Grady, by the way, is a contributing writer at our spy talk site over at Substack. You know, Jeff, I'm not exactly a James Bond aficionado. Yeah, I've watched the movies, but I viewed them purely as entertainment. I don't think I ever thought about them in the context of current events. That was really interesting. Yeah, I think they've become less and less relevant despite their angles of creating villains from international terrorist funding organizations. I I think it still remains pure escapism, although you have to remember that Ian Fleming, the originator of James Bond, was himself an MI6 British intelligence agent. And so there's still a bow to those being spy operations sanctioned by London, but Other than that, I don't think there's much relevance to current affairs or current themes like the John le Carre adaptations, for example. This is pure escapism, and and escapism can be a lot of fun. It certainly can. Enjoy the movies. Thanks a lot for joining us today for Spy Talk. I'm Jean Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Hope to see you again next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.